no one ever goes, oh, I read Wuthering Heights and it wasn't scary enough for me. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brian Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. But this month, we have been talking about a director and not a genre, but a director can sometimes be a genre in themselves. And this month we've been talking about Guillermo del Toro, and this is our final episode on our series of del Toro. So Thomas, what have we talked about these last three weeks regarding del Toro and his career? So we've talked about how he likes to kind of change things up. He, we, we read, I think in this, our second episode, we read a quote from him specifically about like never wanting to do the same movie twice. And we've definitely seen that, in his in his career uh and you know for the most part as far as these kind of all tours go uh being able to work within the studio system fairly well yeah he's mm-hmm. been someone who's pretty consistently uh successful in the box office and then you know he can drop one of these huge movies and then step back and do something smaller and then come back and do yeah. something big without missing a beat as far as themes and and recurring things you know We've we've talked about the idea of most of his films are presented as fairy tales, not just in the way that a lot of them feature kind of magic and fantasy and creatures, but also in the way that they're told. I think something you and I, neither of us were expecting to notice coming into this month was the way he opens all of his films with a prologue. Oh, yeah. uh, except one, except one which we're talking yeah. about today. Eh, still a little bit. A lot of times featuring kind of a child's perspective, even though we're going to kind of step mm-hmm. out of that this week and a lot of we've also just talked about how he is someone who kind of wears his his fandoms on his sleeve he's he's a nerd and he's not afraid to talk about it and so that's led to him making comic book movies that's led to him making you know vampire movies monster movies and so i think specifically this month or this week last week we talked about pacific rim and how it was really just his ode to kaiju movies i think this week is the week his his last three films are when he really sits down with three genres that he loves and says like i'm gonna make my version of of this type of movie so i think we'll, we'll really yeah. see that come into play here and then from a technical standpoint we've talked about his incredible production design his attention to detail as far as character design prosthetics practical effects and also the way in which he is very good at melding visual effects with his practical because of his focus on practical we, you and i you know we're not we're not ones there some people are like oh throw away all the vfx and just do practical and and del toro shows you that you you don't need to do that but if you come into yeah these things with a focus on the practical you can really incorporate the computer generated effects in a way that is almost seamless and i mean we were talking about it even back in 2004 he was doing it in ways that look better than a lot of movies today yeah with with, with hellboy and then even a little bit with blade too as mm-hmm. well um yeah and some of the big things too like theme wise uh, we kind of discussed too these past few weeks is like the idea that in most of his movies the the monsters or the freaks are the more sympathetic characters and the men are the, the real monsters mm-hmm. of usually the story. I think we will definitely see that uh, this week. Yeah, this week for sure. And they're motivated by greed or some sort of kind of power. Um, and is that in almost all three of these movies, specifically the first two we'll talk about today, like, yeah, the real villains of the movie are just 
regular people, mm. basically. And the monsters or the ghosts or the creatures are usually helpful individuals or helpful things um, compared to that. Um, what's what's and also too, you'll see kind of reoccurring things that pop in his movies, like usually insects and mm -hmm. insects in some yeah. way. Um, things in jars. <laughs> if you notice, there'll be a lot of things in jars this past month. Um, uh, kind of the color palettes very much usually warm kind of amber and then kind of blue kind of colors and like teal, uh, red kind of, kind of like three to four main colors. He kind of uses reds, mostly used in production and, and uh, costume design and kind of the warm ambers and blues are the kind of the cinematography aspect of it and lighting. Um, he, he does some things with, uh, with child and parent parental relationships mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Uh, it's not always the forefront as many of the real monsters, but I think it's one that's kind of been buried in there. And I think will come to light even more so this week mm -hmm. with, uh, with the movies we're talking about. Um, and yeah, this week's interesting because it, it feels like it feels like almost, even though it's not like, it's like three blank check movies. If mm -hmm. that makes sense. It's not always, but like, if these are big, like, rated r i think most of the time rated r like big yeah. adult i think all, period all three of, of this week's are definitely rated r for yeah. sure yeah and and yeah. you know if you if you lump in uh pacific rim with this as his like post pan's labyrinth films hellboy yeah. 2 as well he did after pan's labyrinth but it was kind of directly after so i feel like kind of continuate yeah it's kind of continuation yeah. of yeah. hellboy but 1 it, so, it, yeah. it, that's that's kind of where this whole like i'm just going to make I'm going to make my version of the movies that I love and that have those yeah. all four show up during this blank check period where studios are like, he's Guillermo del Toro. We doubted him yeah. at the beginning, but we shouldn't doubt him anymore. And sometimes yeah. it pays off. Yeah. And, and cause this week it does feel like too, like his movies are going to be way more, I guess we radar way more adult also kind of way more sexual mm -hmm. than his previous films. Uh, and we'll get in that as we go. Uh, but yeah, I I think this week will be interesting because we have I think we have some thoughts specifically on a specific movie that that not everyone enjoys from Del Toro. Yeah. So we'll get into that. So let's start off with that first one, talking about Crimson Peak. So let me tell you about how Crimson Peak got made. So after the re release of 2013 Specific Rim, Guillermo Del Toro was attached to several projects that were in development. Like we said last week before Pacific Rim's release, Del Toro had gained a reputation as a director whose projects languished in development hell. Uh, when, and this is a, basically a period when things just can't get made. It's just kind of sitting there. Money's not coming in. Script problems, creative problems, etc. So when talking about his failed at, at the Mountains of Madness, which we talked about last week, Del Toro said that it doesn't look like I can do it. It's very difficult for the studios to take the step of doing a period set, R-rated tentpole movie with a tough ending and no love story. And then five years, five years after he said that, he began making R-rated period pieces with big budgets like tentpole movies. Mm -hmm. Um, with tough with tough endings usually um so after developing a good working relationship with ceo of legendary entertainment thomas toll while working on pacific rim for the company toll asked del toro what project he wanted to make next uh, del toro then sent him three scripts one for at the mountains of madness mm -hmm. uh, a western adaptation of the count of monte cristo Ooh. and a gothic romance called crimson peak toll said that crimson peak was more suited for the company at that time the right kind of scale um, but Crimson Peak was not a new project for Del Toro. He'd actually written the script right after the release of Pan's Labyrinth with Matthew Robbins, who was Del Toro's co-writer on both Mimic and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which Del Toro was a producer on. 
Del Toro's plan was to make it right after Pan's Labyrinth, but it was po postponed for Hellboy 2, and then postponed even further with the development of the Hobbit series. Uh, during this time, however, the project was bought up by Universal Pictures. Uh, when Legendary was interested in the project, uh, Universal allowed Del Toro to move the project over to Legendary, with Universal also putting up money for the film and its distribution. When talking about the film, Del Toro was looking at the films that were dominating the horror genre at the time. He said, I think people are getting used to horror subjects done as found footage or B-value budgets. I want this to feel like a throwback. He called Crimson Peak a ghost story and a gothic romance, describing the film as a very set-oriented, classical, but at the same time modern take on the ghost story, and it said that it would allow him to play with the genre's conventions while subverting their rules. Dottore wanted to pay tribute to all of his favorite haunted house movies, like The Shining, The Haunting, The Innocents, and The Changeling. Mm. Uh, he also wanted to hearken back to these large-scale horror films he admired, like The Exorcist and The Omen. So, when casting for the film, Del Toro came, gave the script to Jessica Chastain, who was working on Del Toro, the Del Toro-produced movie, Mama. Um, Del Toro wanted her to play the lead role, Edith, uh, but Ch Chastain was more interested in playing Lucille Sharp. Uh, later, when playing her, Chastain said she related to Lucille because of her attire. It reminded her of her teenage years of dressing like a goth, <laughs> specifically trying to dress like Winona Ryder from Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, Coppola's movie. So, for the lead roles, uh, Del Toro cast Emma Stone for Edith and Benedict Cumberbatch for Thomas Sharp. Uh, Stone would drop out because of scheduling conflicts, as did Cumberbatch. Del Toro then asked Tom Hiddleston to play the role of Thomas, and he accepted the role 72 hours after Cumberbatch dropped out, but he did <laughs> ask Cumberbatch for his blessing to take the film, and Cumberbatch said yes. Um, Chastain said that Hiddleston said he took the role because the script frightened him greatly when he read it. Um... For Emma Stone's role, they would cast Mia Vasakowska. Mm -hmm. I apologize, I butchered that name. The film was then shot uh, in Toronto, where the entire set was built on, on a soundstage, with Del Toro saying it was the best set he ever worked on because of its massive scale and detail. So after talking about all that, I should have said this earlier. Thomas, what is Crimson Peak about? Uh, Crimson Peak is a gothic romance horror uh yeah. about a young woman who a very bright young woman who wants to be a writer who meets this british nobleman and marries him he kind of sweeps her off her feet even though she's someone who's doesn't seem like she's ever been swept off her feet before and yeah. marries him and returns with him to his family's estate uh to find it is kind of dilapidated run down they've run out of money the house itself is sinking into the ground and he yeah. lives there alone with his sister who he's very close with and yeah as she moves there she begins to experience these kind of hauntings throughout the house the scale of this movie is astonishing yes that set is insane multiple levels like i think it was all built kind of from scratch in a way where like uh i think i read that everything in the in the house was created it wasn't something that was like reused or something uh but yeah, it's the the set's just amazing. The production design is fantastic, and I think this was. I mean, he's had that all before. We talked about this the world building of like the Hellboy movies and um and Pan's Labyrinth. But these this this is like where this period where like the sets just become fan, like amazing in their mm. detail from here on onward to to Nightmare Alley. Um, yeah, this very much harkens back to these kind of gothic romances very very edgar Allan poe as well i think when we t we talked about this movie a little bit on we when we did a haunted house episode way back in the day uh pre-covid so that feels like seven years ago <laughs> um 
we talked about this movie a little bit and we talked about how like it's very much in line with like follow the house of usher from yeah. poe there's a little, a little bit of jane uh jane Eyre in there wuthering heights a lot of hitchcock but but very much like a a, a classical gothic horror gothic romance type of film i think i think wuthering heights is a great one to point to because you know it's a it's a romance with ghosts and no one ever no i'm i'm jumping ahead no one ever goes oh i read wuthering heights and it wasn't scary enough for me <laughs> um yeah but but yeah you have the, the, the fall of the house of usher kind of thing it's like what that kind of ties into it feels like this very incestuous relationship between so so a little bit of spoilers here between hiddleston and chastain yes we will be spoiling You're, you have been warned yeah it's 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 on netflix um uh but yeah because they're brother and sister and it's very much like from the beginning they have a very weird dynamic mm -hmm. like she plays this almost like like motherly figure or something at the beginning like every time when you watch someone they're in the beginning when they're in america at the beginning like she's always kind of whispering in the hills as they're like now's the time mm -hmm. uh you need to do it now um she's the kind of uh the active character in a way or the more aggressive in their in her nature with the things she wants to do very very lady macbeth-esque at the beginning it feels mm -hmm. like of, of kind of this motivator uh to thomas sharp and hillson kind of because he's the young brother he just kind of feels like i'll go about uh like what she wants because as you'll find out it's like they, they were kind of trapped together in their house like uh with their parents always gone and then a murder occurred uh with with the uh, chastain and the mother but yeah this this feel what's, what's interesting watching this time because you said the beginning of the of the month how you we wanted to go through the earlier films del toro to see how his later films connect to his mm -hmm. filmography and it was interesting going back to these after seeing everything because they almost feel like companion pieces to several of his movies mm -hmm. this very much feels like a companion piece to devil's backbone yes absolutely as a ghost story yeah you've got this idea of like this is this is way oversimplifying it, but like ghosts can't, <laughs> ghosts can't help it that they look scary, <laughs> you know. That doesn't <laughs> just because they look scary. That's just how they died. Their bodies are decomposing. They can't help it. That doesn't mean, especially you know, there's this idea that that within other ghost stories that like if you are a ghost, that means you're this tortured spirit. So it doesn't mean what you were like in life. You're gonna uh -huh. be scary. And and yeah. the idea between Devil's Backbone and this is like they might look scary, but like these were innocent people who are now yeah. spirits and and they're trying to help you out they're trying to tell you something they look absolutely terrifying even more so in they this do. one than in devil's backbone but uh but yeah it's still kind of the same message yeah it still very much is i mean even the opening and closing are very similar like mm -hmm. the opening of devil's backbone is a narration uh by the doctor of the orphanage and he says something at the beginning and then the ending it's kind of a repeated phrase but yeah. it's a little bit twisted now at the new meaning and mm -hmm. crimson peak is very similar it's yeah. it starts off with a, a, a shot of the cat kind of toward the end and it's like ghosts, it, are ghosts, real. ghosts are real i know this much yeah and then the the ending is taking that and then twisting it enough like okay but this is the new meaning behind it all so mm -hmm. that's very similar in the devil's backbone yeah well i mean there, there's even stuff you know there's there's bodies 
in a well in the basement. <laughs> yeah, There's, yeah, uh, exactly. Someone, the secrets in the basement. The someone secrets getting in the basement. stabbed in the armpit, which is a very yep. particular place to stab. Yep. There's a there's another death in the lair film that's also ties to another one from a previous movie too. But yeah, it's very much similar things are happening in this movie that that happened in Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you still have the kind of like the insects and stuff they're kind of playing into this a little bit. Like you had the whole scene of them talking about mods and butterflies, basically. Mm-hmm. And how basically Chastain is kind of the moth and and Edith is the and Mia is the uh, the butterfly. And it's kind mm-hmm. of this uh, interesting kind of like battle between the two because it's kind of saying, oh, because you're beautiful, you're kind of a weak character in some ways. What's kind of saying about Edith, mm-hmm. but she kind of proved she's this kind of very strong willed character from the very beginning. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Sharon and, and Little Women, especially early on when she's yeah, trying to write yeah, her book. Yeah, where greta gerwig stole the beginning of little women from this movie because <laughs> it very much because this one feels weirdly this one feels like del toro's most meta movie that he's made it feels like because mm. he has the beginning talking about like about stories and how oh, they always want to have a love and like a love story or whatever and i just the ghost are metaphors for the past yes. like it's very right. much he's talking about this yes I mean, she she says i mean we I don't want to jump ahead, but we'll come back to a very important quote from the first five minutes of this movie when the the, you know, book publisher who like is obviously like doesn't know much about literature uh, yeah. is like, oh, it's a ghost story. And she's like, well, there's ghosts in it, but it's not a ghost story. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, mark that people yeah, at mark the studio that. uh universal yeah. marketing team. Did you watch marketing the first team. five minutes of this film? <laughs> But yeah, it's it's another part that I love that's a funny kind of like I feel meta joke in a way is that the ending again, spoilers here, but like when when uh, Edith kills Lucille and Lucille's like, I'll like you or you'll have to kill me to stop me. Mm-hmm. And then when she hits her, she's like, I heard you the first time. <laughs> like it's such it's such a weird life for this movie. Yeah, but it's, it's like so out of a Schwarzenegger funny. movie. It is. It very much is. I heard you the first time, um, but it works so well um but yeah so when watching this too I, I i said earlier about how like he's making reference to some of his favorite movies it's like there's scenes in here or like props or whatever that are from other like haunted house movies mm-hmm. it's like you have the changeling chair yep. that's just there when she's walking by the kind of uh ball like the, the 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 red ball is from the changeling as well but the scene when she goes into the bathroom is just the shining scene when jack nelson goes in the bathroom it's just now it's yeah. a gothic romance well, instead they're they're so i i had forgotten because i remembered feeling a lot of like rebecca vibes from this the first yeah. time i saw yeah, it yeah. and you know it's a it's a bright young woman who you know has this whirlwind romance and then when she gets to her husband's estate is immediately like whoa this is not what i wanted out of this and mm-hmm. even down to the point of like kind of you know setting up the husband as this you know malicious energy and just kind of revealing towards the uh-huh. end of the film that it, he's not necessarily the one to be afraid of and it yeah. might be the you know the other woman in the house who's been scooting under the radar yeah um but i had forgotten how much notorious was in this you know yeah. there's the poisoning of the tea there's the scene yep. with the key and trying to get the key away and getting the key yeah. back before anybody notices it there's a lot of notorious in this movie so a lot of hitchcock for sure very hitch yeah very hitchcocking the entire time um what i also 
what I also loved about too with this is uh, we'll talk about themes real quick. So because we've talked about this with Del Toro, but like you have the kind of again the monster, the the real the the monsters are the are the people basically. It's not mm-hmm. the ghost or it's not whatever. That's very prominent. Yep. I think you have the strained parental relationship. No, oh, absolutely. Uh, with, with 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 specifically Chastain Hilston with their their unseen parents mm-hmm. in a way. Well, I mean, I don't know if I wouldn't say that uh, Vazikowski and um, and her dad, Jim have Beaver, a yeah. Yeah, Jim Beaver. Thank it's, you. That's that's one that's like it's it's almost the opposite. You know, it's someone yeah, who it's is the like opposite. so close to her father that like her entire world is is like that. That scene, she is so good in that scene with the with the body when she's oh, yeah. just like in denial. Um, it's yeah. He, he's turning sixty or something. Yeah, he or doesn't whatever. Look his age. Oh yeah, that that scene is fantastic. Heartbreaking. Yeah. No, I, I think the cast is fantastic overall in this entire movie. I think mm-hmm. Chastain's great. I think I mean she steals the movie probably. But Hiddleston, that guy coming uh, back Von, from uh, that guy coming back from Pacific Rim. Uh, which one? The scientist. Which guy? That's the um. He's the private eye oh, Char- in this one. Char- uh, well, you mean Charlie Hunnam, or you mean no, 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 no. You, oh, you know that guy. That yeah. guy. Yes, I know you're talking about. Yes, who's the detective? Yeah. Who's like searching? Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Charlie Hunnam also popping up in here from Pacific Rim as well. Mm-hmm. Um apparently to get when he when he when Del Toro offered him the role, he said, You're playing the damsel in distress. <laughs> Which he is in the in the ending of the movie. Yeah, by the by the time like it, it, it definitely does play with the idea of this guy like swooping in kind of like Carrie, you know, another notorious thing. You do think he's going to yeah. like swoop in like Cary Grant and carry her out of there, which as much as yeah. I love that movie is kind of a lame ending. But, um, <laughs> but he, you know, he thinks he's figured all this out, but she's Edith has figured it out. Or, you know, he comes in and he's like, they're poisoning you. And she's like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> like he really, other than like, stalling them from murdering her for you know long enough for her to regain yeah. her strength uh, that's like really she, yeah she's the she's the one protecting him down the basement when chastity mm-hmm. when lucille's coming down there to fight um and yeah lucille uh, chastain in that scene when she does like the the jump start like, huh, when mm-hmm. she's like running when she's like when she's like and then all of a sudden she starts running i that's hysterical that you know as as scary as as scary as as a lot of the ghosts are in this movie, and I, Doug Jones did most of them, right? I, I, yes, yes, he did. Yes, he did. He's fantastic. Like the movement on some of those ghosts is incredible. I love, I love all the ghost scenes in this movie, and they're so well realized. And and that that also feels, you know, kind of like the way he did the kid in Devil's Backbone. Feel this feels mm-hmm. like just kind of stepping that up even more. But it's mm-hmm. such an interesting way to portray ghosts. But yeah. all that to say, I think the most terrifying shot in this movie is when she's looking down the hall waiting for thomas to come back and you just kind of see shadows moving and hear chastain coming and then she like comes around the corner that is terrifying (laughs) um a lot i mean yeah a lot terrifying again terrifying shots in the movie that's like not a a a terrifying horror film i guess you could say like it's 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 about atmosphere Mm -hmm. and it's it's weird because i feel like critics even who may understood that it wasn't a horror film didn't like the atmosphere of it. But I think he really nails the atmosphere of a Gothic romance of this kind of turn of the century kind of, uh, story. Also to bring in this here too, is that I think we're at an interesting point with these next three films where like you have the backdrop of history happening as it's going. Mm-hmm. So like you kind of have this industrial, like revolution type 
story happening because because Hiddleston is a character where he's trying to like live off the land of his of his family and do like kind of a mining thing and like with built this machine basically that could help like help or create their fortune um and so you kind of have that he's traveling around all the kind of world to get financing for it and you have that backdrop and then we'll talk about later but like you have the 60s with shape of water and then you have world war ii with nightmare alley like he's using history as an interesting backdrop with these films that he did previously he did with pants labyrinth and he did with devil's backbone so it's all it's all kind of there i will say this time when watching it the one thing i did think of because he because del toro was attached to a haunted mansion movie Mm. and i was just like watching this like yeah i don't know why he would want to do a haunted mansion movie after this movie because it's pretty much what he probably would have done that's true that's true the for Haunted Mansion movie. i was like i was li- so excited for the del toro haunted mansion movie man i was I so excited at some point in my life i've i've gone through like wikipedia because every haunted mansion and every disney park has like a different backstory to it, it. it's fascinating it does. It does. Yeah, yeah imagineering is fascinating to me but um yeah i was i was really but yeah the, this does have a lot of the same themes as as the the orlando haunted mansion has. orlando yeah exactly because with the whole like the the murder bride basically right. where she's the yeah. that where she's killing all of her husbands for money or something it's a whole separate room and this is very similar where they're killing they're, they're spoiler he's they're killing kind of wives to get their money to fund this mining thing uh in their home in england mm-hmm. and yeah and uh, one other thing i want to bring up too is like the the beginning is uh you have like the title of uh, like the opening of a book it's mm-hmm. kind of again this like storytelling type thing and i think it ends someone pointed out i didn't catch it when i watched it that it ends with like a book closing as well it ends with the and book closing may- and they show you at the end they don't show you at the beginning but at the end they show you that it's her book it was it was written it was written by her yeah. yes mm-hmm. it's like it's but yeah it's basically she's writing this story is what it is yeah at the beginning it, it just says like crimson peak on it but at the end it says like written by you. yeah yeah again it's a it's a story within a story it feels like um but no it's like again i bring it back to like it's one of his more meta movies and even again it's back to that opening of her talking she's talking about like oh like all, all i want is a love story for me or like add this in there and his comment early on five years before is the studios don't want to make these r-rated period pieces that have tough endings without and don't have a love story <laughs> and this feels like a little bit of a like okay i'll throw in a love story here too it's it's going to be part of the tough ending though and i think it works in this one it, it kind of works as a surprise like you you get such a you know it, it is kind of setting it up throughout the movie to make you think that that thomas is the true villain and and kind yeah. of the twist is that it's his sister and and yeah. he's he, his heart's never really been in it and it's especially not in it now that he's fallen for edith i think they they do it incredibly well i love the i love the little scene when he finally gets the machine working and he's like i've got to tell edith and and she's just like what <laughs> how dare you mm-hmm. i've been with you the entire time um so yeah but no a lot of great stuff and i think what i what, when it came out and we'll we'll dive into reception here but like people saw it as like oh this isn't the del toro i know when everything we're watching is like this is exactly the del toro yes that he's promised you for the past decade or more yep like two decades basically yeah it's like, exactly, exactly like him. i said last week i think when people think back on pan's labyrinth they think of the the pale man scene which is like yes, yeah it's scary but that is like really the only scary part of the movie outside of the captain's scenes yeah yeah but let's dive into reception here so 
Universal wanted to release the film during the Halloween season, but mm-hmm. Del Toro did not finish the film until December 2014 or January 2015, so they held the film for October. But Universal began marketing the film marketing the film as a straight horror film for the Halloween season, even though Del Toro constantly said the film was a gothic romance. The trailers, however, made it seem like a movie full of ghosts and jump scares, which this film ver- has very little of either. Um, because of this, audiences were very mixed in the film because they believed that with Del Toro directing it, it would be chock full of scares and not some period piece romance. Win. Win. <laughs> we just watched all of his movies. This is exactly what I said at the beginning of the of the month. I was like, I, I yeah. really want to go back and see where people got, you know, where this happened well, to Crimson yeah. Peak. And well, I heard I heard him talk about it at one point. He goes, as a producer, I like sticking with like the genre tropes of like giving you scares and giving you this as a director. I don't like doing that. Mm. Is what he said. So I don't know if it was because of all his name being attached, like this producing stuff, why people thought that. And they're like, wait, what is this mess? Like, what is this? Um, Because, but yeah, because he has kind of different approaches to directing, um, directing and producing. Um, This led to the film underperforming at the box office, making only 75 million million worldwide and only $31 million from the U.S. on a $55 million budget. Uh, critical reception was also as mixed, the audience re- reaction. Uh, A.O. Scott from New York Times said that the film is too busy and in some ways too gross to sustain an effective atmosphere of dread, while others at the time believed it was his best film since Pan's Labyrinth, or and behind Pan's Labyrinth. And since the film seven uh, released seven years ago, Crimson Peak continu- continues to be Del Toro's most controversial film with fans and critics alike, with many beginning to believe is his most underrated film, while others believing it could be one of his worst. (laughs) I think we're probably in the, in the former uh, than the latter. I think he, it it's, you talked about this uh, last month when we were talking about eyes wide shut a little bit of how like eyes wide shut is one of Kubrick's most like his most rich text, basically like Mm -hmm. it's, there's so much in it. And I feel like Crimson Peak is kind of that with Del Toro. I feel like there's a lot here that goes unnoticed. Yeah. And I I think it's one of his most beautifully like pulled off. Like you said, that set is in. Yeah. It's amazing. The, the, the like clay oozing from the walls and like every scene, such amazing, amazing imagery. The, the way he, the way it's, it's brilliant. The way he builds in this, you know at the early on he's like yeah you know the way the house is laid out when the wind blows it like yeah it it, all the fireplaces explode which he proceeds to use as like a button to tense scenes throughout the rest of the movie and it's so well done and it's never like the end of the and then the end of the movie he uses the fireplace going up at, at the end yeah and it's never done like like someone's like oh my goodness the the fireplace is about to explode it's usually like in the background during a yeah. scene but like something big will happen and the fireplace will just, um it, yeah it's so intricate and and yeah i think about it you know with the other two movies we're going to talk about today when people are like wow the production design was so great on that i'm like crimson peak um <laughs> i've got i've got a, i've got a bit of a rant on this one but i'll, I'll so when crimson peak came out youthon and i i remember really wanted to see it in theaters but it got like disappointing reviews and then i feel like it was out of theaters just immediately once people Pretty were quickly, like yeah that movie's not scary don't go see it like theaters were just like all right we're not carrying it and and so then we rented it from from cinephile and we were both like what the hell that movie was great like what is what is going on here 
Um, but I think this was one of the most botched marketing campaigns in film history. And and what really sucks is I think it was just two years too early for the like elevated horror movement. Yeah, I agree. Um, 2015, 20. So it follows was 2014. The witch was 2015. Hereditary was 2016. Um, 2017. That might have been, that might have been 2018. 2018. Yeah. 2018 for hereditary. Yeah. But you know, I think this is, I don't think he's doing anything differently here than some of those later like a 24 movies do like there are legitimate scares in this movie it's just not a movie that is concerned with making you jump out of your seat the whole time and i think you know the the later successful product that is close most closely tied to this is the haunting phil house um yeah you know that that is another one that is just kind of like the the ghosts are the message and the message is family trauma you know um which is what the early ghost stories were about. That's what Changeling yeah. is about. Um, that's what Edgar Allan Poe is about. Um, so yeah, I think I, I it 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 hurts to think that if this movie had come out two years later, and I don't want to say A twenty four could solve everything, but you know, if somebody other than Universal, somebody who had a a little bit more experience marketing a movie like this, had had come on to it, like I I really think this could have done really well, but. Yeah, it's just wild to go back and look. I, I pulled the trailer back up this week, and I think they use every shot of a ghost from the movie in the, yeah, in the trailer. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I just remember because the trailer was so like, oh, cause I think that's probably why I didn't go see it because I was just like, I don't really go see like a. I, I, I at that point was in the horror really at all, and so I was like, I had no interest in really seeing that in theaters, and I did rent it from Cinephile, and was like, oh, this is pretty good. And then I think I've revisited, I've revisited this one maybe more than any of his films now that i think about really? it this was my first time I rewatching think, it since it came out yeah i i think i've seen it three times three or four times now um so yeah i think it's very much like yeah i think i i didn't ask that earlier but yeah our history of it has been very like we've been kind of like didn't go see it because of the way it was marketed because of what everyone said and then we watched it, we're like oh wow this was kind of underrated and unseen yeah but I, I do think there's an audience for this. I think the, the yeah, way it was marketed feels like Universal probably saw a final cut and they were like, I don't know who we marketed this to. So just yeah. pretend like it's scary and we'll market it to those people, which always ends up with a backlash. I mean, it, we've seen it happen over and over again. There's always some film coming out of Sundance. That everybody's like, this is the scariest movie you'll ever see. And we're like, it's probably yeah. not. It's an indie film coming out of Sundance. So don't set it up like that. Like. <laughs> No, it's probably just gonna be. It's probably just be like about trauma and everything yeah. like that, and the the ghost, the ghost are a metaphor. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a film that it it was definitely misunderstood in its time, and I do think, I I hopefully the the I think I think out of all the three films we're looking at, I know like this is the one that I feel like people will go back to the most and be like, oh, this is actually really good because like everyone I talk to when I talk about this, when they're like. Oh yeah, I didn't like because I thought it was gonna be like a horror film, and it was just kind of like this romance. And I was just like, yeah, but that's what I, it was always supposed to be. It, wasn't <laughs> it supposed literally to be says a... in the first five minutes. <laughs> this is what's supposed to be. This is this is the thesis of the movie. Basically, it feels like it's like oh no, it's this is what the whole movie's about. Yeah, it. So yeah, people just really kind of missed the mark on what he was doing and who he was as a who he is as a director mm. is kind of the thing. So so he does crimson peak and how also how on earth 
this does not get nominated for any like Oscars for best production design or any of that is is damn right insane to me. Like it's nominated for like Saturn Awards and Empire Awards, like again for like best horror film, best best costume design, best makeup, but like nothing on yeah, costume the design alone. Like gorgeous costume. That's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 a shame. So he he goes on and does this, which is one of his more unsuccessful movies, and it it, it makes. It makes seventy five million on a fifty five million dollar budget. I mean, it's with marketing and everything. It's not. It's not a hit. Um, it definitely much underperforms. Um, but two years later, he releases a movie that ends up kind of being the opposite of Crimson Peak in terms of reception, and that is The Shape of Water. So, Thomas, what's what's your history with The Shape of Water? Uh, I saw Shape of Water. I, I watched a screener at home. Um, I don't. No, remember. We, I think we saw. Well, no, we saw it in theaters Mm-mm. together. I'm pretty sure. I did not go. Did you? Well. Okay, I saw it at the Grove. That's all I know. I saw it at the Grove. I think you Maybe thought you I might have gone with you because I know you yeah, found I think saw, so. when I watched it on the screener, he was there and he had already seen it. But yeah, I, I watched okay. it on a screener at home and uh, like right before the Oscars went down. Because uh-huh. pe- it was it was around the time people were starting to be like, this this might be the one. This might. Yeah, this is. The, yeah, it's the one that's like making the most headway yeah. at the end. Yeah. Um. And it didn't, I, I don't know, it didn't blow me away as much as, as other people seem to to buy into it. Yeah, I so I really liked it the first time I saw it. And we'll talk about how I feel about it this time. But I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. So so what is The Shape of Water about, Thomas? So The Shape of Water is set during the Cold War in kind of a nondescript American town. And the main character, Eliza, is a mute uh, uh, cleaning woman for this government facility and she is kind of as as the cleaning lady is privy to this monster that's being studied in this lab that is essentially you know the swamp thing or the creature from the black yeah. lagoon or in any of those classic water monsters um yeah. and while she's cleaning that lab she falls in love with him she teaches him sign language she recognizes kind of a kindred spirit as someone who's who's kind of seen as a freak and someone who can't communicate with others. And yeah. so through mutual love of music and hard boiled eggs, they fall in love and she decides she's going to, she's going to break him out. And through a coincidental uh, meshing of her attempt to break him out and a Soviet attempt to take him out of the U S government's yeah. hands, she's able to get him out. And, and the head of security at the lab Strickland played by Michael Shannon sets out to track him down and get him back but is fully under the impression that it is a full team of soviet operatives who have stolen it <laughs> yeah miles shan's great in this movie for one uh i mean a lot of great performances i think so yeah that's shape of water so let's go into how this kind of gets gets made and, and kind of the, where the idea comes from so the idea for del toro's next film uh, had come to him in 2011 when working on his novel troll hunters which i haven't talked about a lot of his novel stuff but he well, he wrote troll hunters which is now the netflix mm-hmm. uh, tv show or was uh with co-writer daniel kraus when del toro was younger he loved the universal horror film the creature from the black lagoon he said that he always wished the creature and leading female character Kay lawrence played by julianne adams would succeed in their romance um around this time del toro was in talks to direct a remake of the creature from the black lagoon for universal And he pitched the idea of telling the story from the creature's perspective, but Universal was not interested in that concept. Um, So Del Toro had written the film with Sally Hawkins in mind for the lead role, and he pitched it to her at the 2014 Golden Globes while drunk. Uh, 
<laughs> he said the shape of water. He said the shape of water is not an idea that sounds less weird when intoxicated. Hawkins accepted the role, uh, and then Del Toro then offered the lead role for the amphibian man to his trusted collaborator Doug Jones, who was at first terrified when he found out that it was the romantic lead. Um, <laughs> but he trusted Del Toro and began kind of working on the movements of the amphibian man, renting out a dance studio to kind of develop that kind of uh, 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 body language. Part of Giles. Uh, the kind and closeted gay neighbor of Sally Hawkins character, Eliza, uh, was written with Ian McKellen in mind, oh. but he was unable, he was unable to do the role. Uh, Del Toro then sent the script to Richard Jenkins and asked him over email if he would do it. And he gladly accepted, uh, Del Toro would then cast Octavia Spencer, Michael Stuhlbarg and Michael Shannon, the remaining roles. Shannon was fascinated by the role when Del Toro said that his character Strickland would have been the hero of the story if it was made in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Spencer Octavia Spencer liked the liked the role so much because she found it fantastic that her role and uh, uh, Richard Jenkinson's role were two type of characters that were shunned and kind of oppressed in the because it takes place in the 1960s in the middle of like civil rights and all these things and that uh, Jenkinson's character being a gay man and Octavia Spencer being a black woman in this period were usually always the silent characters in the real world and these two had the most lines out of the main people and the kind of the main trio of, of cast. Uh, and speaking of cast for all of Del Toro's films, he writes an extensive backstory for all of his characters. Uh, I believe this became a little bit more, more known with Crimson Peak uh, when it started happening, but the shape of water, he wrote almost 40 pages worth of backstory for all of its major characters. Wow. And he, he asked the writers if they wanted to use them or not. Richard Jenkins chose not to read the backstory saying he wanted to only use what was on the screen while Stuhlbarg used them religiously. Um, again, like uh, Crimson Peak, the film was the production was held in Toronto. And when going into the film, Del Toro said that if this film flopped, he was strongly considering retiring from directing. <laughs> um, so what's some of your favorite scenes about this movie or what makes it kind of unique? I love, I really love the the kind of breakout sequence. I'm a big, big yeah, Michael Stuhlbarg fan and yeah it, 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 it is kind of fun to watch it's kind of kind of heisty and it's kind of fun to watch it go down in this way that it's like very obviously a bunch of people yeah. who've never done that in their entire lives who just happened to decide to do it the same night that this soviet operative was going to do it and so it all kind of worked out perfectly that they were able to work together on it and um i think everybody's really fun in that scene and, it, and it's got i mean the whole movie has a lot of humor to it but you know there's you've got the thing of richard jenkins hitting michael shannon's new car on his way out and it, it's yeah. it's it's really fun yeah and uh, well it's what, what's so funny about this movie it's like it's also it's a creature movie it's a monster movie but it's also like it's a cold war spy thriller mm-hmm. but told from the perspective of the people who are cleaning up where the spies hang out at it's kind of mm-hmm. what it feels like it's like it's extras that are now the lead actors in a movie which i find kind of fascinating um yeah, no, the funny, one of my favorite lines, I don't know why, it's when, even though it's a, it's a very, like, kind of uh, brutal scene, but when Shannon uh, shoots, like, the Russian operatives and then Stuhlbarg, and then he's like, you were speaking Russian, Bob! <laughs> like, the way, the way, the way he's, like, so, an- Shannon is, like, one of the best angry actors out there. Oh, yeah. Like, how he can capture anger is just so impressive. But, yeah, I, so... I've said I said Crimson Peak. It's that one's connected to uh, uh, Devil's Backbone, and this feels like the most one, the, the film that's most connected to Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. I think they're both very much fairy tales. 
and they're about a character that feels uh, out of place in their own world. And so the ending is them going to this new world mm-hmm. that they are now part of. That's very much Pan's Labyrinth, and that's very much The Shape of Water. Um, and you kind of have, I think the Octavia Spencer role is very much in line with kind of the 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 maid role in Pan's Labyrinth mm-hmm. as like kind of the 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 caretaker of the young girl in that one. Is, I think Octavia Spencer is kind of that way for for Eliza, uh, for Sight Hawkins in this, in this film. Um, again, it's, and, and this one too, I think why like shape of water does very well with, with, uh, the awards of uh, Oscars as we get into it later. But like, this does feel like, again, a throwback to earlier films, not even just horror films, but like you have like Richard Jenkins and Sight Hawkins doing like the gold rush, Charlie Champlin, like tap dance, mm-hmm. like with the, that he does with the bread and the gold rush. They do when they're like watching a movie and talk about like uh, Betty Grable and all these kind of old film stars. Like it's it's not a movie about Hollywood, but it somehow feels like it kind of is in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It's just the, it's the it's the style of filmmaking. Because again, with these three movies he's making, it's that like these are movies that like are old Hollywood films. It feels like mm-hmm. with the scale of the budget and the stories they're trying to tell, but stories that could not have been made at that point in time it feels yes. like yeah yeah and i mean even you know the big kind of black and white dance sequence yeah uh definitely it's very it's fred astaire ginger rogers just like mm-hmm. he, i think he took that from uh follow the fleet is what it was props to doug jones for pulling yeah. that off <laughs> and an amphibian man outfit yeah like and i and i heard i read i was listening to him talk about del toro talk about uh uh one of the biggest things the director has to do is balance tone and how jumping from the world of Shape of Water into that black and white dance scene was like really a, a acrobatic use of trying to capture the right tone. Because mm. if that if you can't make that transition from one one style like one kind of point to the other and that with the tone, it will just feel off. Mm-hmm. Like tone is one of those things where like literally can make or break a film. Like if the tone's too one way when it should be this way it just feels just kind of a, a wonky film and shape of water is a movie where like it could literally it, it feels like because the topic and what he's doing it's like he's like walking on the edge of a cliff mm-hmm. where this could go into a where it's just so like schlocky and and campy and and over the top but he doesn't do it and yeah. i think why it doesn't feel that way is because he has someone like richard jenkins who has a very heartfelt performance in this film. I think yeah. he's one of my favorite performances in this movie is that he's, he's kind of the heart of it all. Yeah. E- everything about it feels very sincere. You know, it's, it yeah. feels weird yeah. to say it's a dark fairy tale, but it's comedic, but it's brutally violent at times. And it's also very sexual, which I think is, you know, that, that yeah. kind of became the joke that it was yeah. the, the fish sex movie. Um, yeah. But it, but it's very kind of, there's nothing, done with like tongue-in-cheek or irony really throughout the movie it is just very sincere about all these different genres and all these different turns that it takes and so the and so they work and so yeah and even though i said it were i i do think this time when i watched it i do think my view of it went down a little bit mm. i think because i've been watching so much of del toro stuff i think this is the one that like somehow was the the big one that people just latched onto. Because it was like, oh, it's a fairy tale, which very much that's why it's so tied to Pan's Labyrinth. So like, it has again opening narration, has that prologue, just like Crimson Peak did, just like all of his films have. 
um or most of them have with the narration and it's it's setting up the world and then we have the closing narration the same way and it feels very much like this and it's and it's, and, and then it's jenkins that's narrating it and it's very much talking about like sally hawkins is a princess it feels like mm-hmm. that's what it is like underwater princess or something um but yeah it's just i think it just feel like the made the more accessible movie for people mm-hmm. yeah which it's, is weird why which is weird to say about the the fish yeah, sex movie but <laughs> but yeah kind of it just feels like it is for some reason of like in terms of like like period piece dramas i feel like it's his most accessible mm. one uh because of kind of the little comedic uh, uh touches to it uh and against the, again the design of the movie is amazing uh, the colors are amazing the the production design's amazing the score's fantastic yeah um although i do have a bone to pick with the score oh do you really uh, i pick it the score it, this this film won best score uh the same year oh, that Johnny greenwood was nominated for phantom thread is one of the greatest film scores of all time. So, <laughs> is that your biggest like uh, like the Oscars got wrong pick? One of them, yes, for sure. Okay, yeah, okay. But yeah, I, I yeah, it's 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 a very much like it. This feels like, and not as a knock on the film. This feels like his most like for the awards type movie. Mm-hmm. And this was also at a time. I mean, it was part of a bigger conversation about you know. The artist had won a couple years earlier it was like yeah yeah every, everyone knew it was like oh if you put some like old hollywood stuff into your movie you're gonna you're gonna do well at the oscar so that I, I, yeah that conversation was definitely brought up with this one was you know yeah like you just said it, there is all this kind of classical hollywood imagery in it and like what what purpose does it serve really and, and, and i think it's, it's still very much him it's still very much del toro but i do think even even though it does have the like the real the real monster is the is men basically and it's they're motivated by power or greed or whatever um uh, but it does feel like his his i don't know sometimes like his themes are a little bit more buried in this one for some reason and i love michael shannon i love michael yeah. shannon in this role but from a writing standpoint for from someone who created someone as like nuanced and terrifying as the captain in pants labyrinth yeah. with this one it's like god we get it he's sexist he's racist he's he's a, a he's sexual a harasser guy. he, he yeah. you know he's weird he's he's gross he doesn't wash his hand when he pees it's like <laughs> everything that like everything you learn about this guy just makes him more and more and more repulsive yeah but, and i get it you know if that's what you're going for but um you know the the i think the captain is so well done in pants yeah. labyrinth and he's he it feels like he's trying to create a similar character here obviously someone who thinks he's in the right and like you said yeah. someone if if he was made from a different perspective could be the hero but um yeah. man there's a couple of times you know you're you're 50 minutes into the movie and you find out you know another thing that he's like racist about and you're just like oh yeah fine, we get it like he's a bad guy we got it are they are they like he oh he would cheat on his wife because he because he has that scene when he mm-hmm. grabs cy hawkins he's like yeah i kind of like that you're quiet because yeah. like that's what he says earlier he's like that's kind of the perfect thing because his wife when they're having sex is like starting to talk. He's like, no, shh, shh, stop talking. It's, it's so, it's so disturbing. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's a well-crafted movie. One of his best in terms of like style, it feels like, but it just, it, yeah, it feels like there's looking back on in hindsight now, as we're coming on like uh, five years later or whatever, 
it, it just feels like it it's not as good as I thought it was in the moment mm-hmm. is the thing. Cause this comes out in 2017 and 2017 pretty big, big year of movies that I love that this movie's up for. Yeah. Um, so the film's released, uh, it, it premieres at Venice film festival on August 31st, 2017. Uh, it comes out in the U S December 1st, 2017, just in time for Oscar season. Um, and it's pretty much a massive hit with critics and, and audiences alike um it op- it grosses uh 63 million dollars in the u.s um but a total worldwide of 195 million currently sits at 92 percent on rotten tomatoes with many calling it one of uh del toro's best um and it just has a pretty successful run for a film of this caliber when movie when movies are being dominated by big blockbuster films this is kind of a mid-budget adult drama uh with uh with the fish in it and it's a love story (laughs) um there would be later there would be uh accusations of plagiarism for the film with several things like i think one was a short film that it felt like it was being taken from um some believe that he took it from uh jean-pierre Jeanette's movies with uh uh, amelie and delicatessen and see lost children and some people it's like is it influence or is it plagiarism that's kind of a big question with these with the kind of people like del toro or tarantino it's like what exactly is it is it is it homage or is it plagiarism um but the film would be nominated for 13 academy awards uh at the oscars in 27 or for uh, 2017 or the 90th academy awards it won i believe four oscars is what it was it was um yeah one for best production design best original score best director and best picture so i'm gonna read you off the best picture nominees (laughs) and you tell me so we got one two three four five six seven eight nine so all ten oscars ten ten nominees this year all right we got three billboard we're going from the top for them from the bottom uh three billboards outside ebbing missouri Mm -hmm. the post okay phantom thread yes ladybird yes Get Out. Yes. Dunkirk. Yes. Darkest Hour. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting on that. Call Me By Your Name and Shape of Water. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the answer is obvious here. I've, I've had this conversation many times. Uh, Get Out is the film of yeah, 2017. Yeah, it's the film of the year. It, it shaped, it completely reshaped the way that we make movies. You know, it brought back the idea... You know, we were uh, we were talking with Crimson Peak about like elevated horror. Um, Get Out was huge in that movement. Yeah, but it also made studios realize like, oh hey, you can make a little bit of money off of making mid budget movies again. Yeah, um, and it was just, it was the movie that felt like it captured like everybody saw that movie, and pe- a lot of people I thought wouldn't like that movie, like that movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I, well, Get Out's one. I remember there was a tweet that came out recently. They're saying like it's been five years since get out and Hollywood's not come close and trying to capture that type story again. No, no. Like that, sh- that shows you how original that film is. I know this is Del Toro podcast, but we're just segue here or a tangent here on get out. But like, that's what makes it so original is that like no one's been able to create that feeling that, that tone. Like it's, it's such a, I think a masterpiece 
that Jordan Peele did in this first movie out. Mm-hmm. And I think even even and that's what's going to be difficult for him. I mean, I, us was good. I didn't like it as much as Get Out, but like it, it's going to be so hard trying to make a movie that tops that. I'm intrigued because I think Peele has such a, a, a unique voice, but like no one's been able to top that to top Get Out in terms of what that movie does, what mm-hmm. it's trying to say, uh, and and what it does so well. But I think for me, I not the knock on Shape of Water, but like my top three films that year: Dunk or Get Out, Lady Bird, and Dunkirk. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could make an argument for several of those over Shape of Water, which is interesting because I love Del Toro, and um, I mean we'll get to we'll get to our rankings at the end, but by far not a bad movie, very pleasant, no. very pleasant movie. But you know, you and I have had conversations outside of the podcast that sometimes a Best Picture win can be a curse to a film's legacy because. <laughs> we'll find out this weekend when the oscars happen well, it also lends itself you know everybody it's 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 become more and more common thing to say now but it's like we shouldn't give out the best picture oscar for like five years <laughs> yeah because you, you you just yeah let's wait the the zeitgeist there, there's such a difference in the zeitgeist like two months out of oscar season versus a couple of years out of oscar season. wouldn't that wouldn't that be crazy if we just like we hold we hold the oscars for like just we wait for another five years they'll have mm-hmm. another oscars for five years and like cool let's award the movies and then we're like okay cool 20, hey, 23. hey academy when was the last time you watched the artist you know let's, uh... <laughs> and i like the artist but i i was i was one of the five people in theaters in alabama that saw the <laughs> artist when it came out trust me uh i was there man um but yeah it's yeah it feels like yeah i agree with with that on the oscars um so he does that movie 2017 and of course everyone after that is like what's del toro's next movie gonna be he made his fairy tale movie very a la pants labyrinth as i said um it's like del toro's back and he's now like really mainstream again after crimson peak not doing that well and pacific rim was his is his biggest box office thing but i guess i still just see that as like such a, its own movie and when watching it now it's del toro but it's del toro light it feels like i just feel i feel like it's not as much as his other stuff but that's just me um mm-hmm. so the next movie he does is nightmare alley which just came out this past year in 2021 um so thomas what, what's your history with nightmare alley these past three months of it being being a- <laughs> I, I watched this one on a screener at home okay yeah. uh and and really enjoyed it i think you and i were, were texting immediately after um yeah. but it's been it's been an interesting one like i i feel like i have to keep bringing it up in oscar conversations with people yeah um, people forget about it yeah and and it's definitely found here's the thing not not a i i have seen and people that i discuss this movie with and this goes back to what i was saying about crimson peak the 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 group that this movie seems to have resonated with are like the a24 bros yeah and and it has (laughs) it has created this culture of like you know i think it's done now two tours around the states of the like black and white cut you know they've got this film version that's kind of going around the country like a road show Mm -hmm. and and screening this like black and white version of it and it's gaining this like kind of weird following of people that that go to see that and that and i've talked to a couple people that have been like oh this was my favorite movie of the year and and it does kind of feel like that same you know it it feels like i have the same conversation with people that are like nightmare alley and and green knight was like my favorite movie of the year so really interesting culture building up around nightmare alley but but yeah 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 it was speaking of the black and white because he wanted to do shape of water in black and white 
I didn't, I didn't preface that, but he wanted to do Shape of Water in black and white, but they were going to offer him less money. It's like, I think it was $20 million to do it in color, $17 million to do it in black and white. And he thought color would, would make more sense because it was, he'd want to immerse you in the world of Shape of Water and not be like a look back on something. Um, but Nightmare Alley feels like, yeah, I, I, my roommate who saw it first in color, he's like, yeah, it was good. It was fine. Like, I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. He goes, but when I saw it in the black and white version, because Del Toro did a screening at the New Art Theater, sold out. And he's like, it really just like shot up as one of my favorites of the year. If you're listening, David, hi. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's 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 a uh, it's very much like there is like a little bit of a cult around it. And and, and like I mean, it's showing it as we're recording this, it's showing at the New Beverly in L.A. Uh, for three days, this past three days. So like, it's very much becoming kind of a thing. Um, and so yeah, I, I wonder where this will be in a few years. Um, we'll get into this because some stuff will play in. I mean, again, I says we said this before. Happened with Crimson Peak. Happened with Blade Two. Something always gets in the way. It feels like of a lot of Del Toro's films mm-hmm. in terms of its release. So, what is Nightmare Alley about, Thomas? Nightmare Alley is a remake or adaptation of a book yeah. that has was previously made uh, back in the the prime film noir. 19, yeah, nineteen forty seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. nineteen forty seven. I believe is what it was. But it's about a man, kind of a con man, who works his way up through this uh, carnival sideshow business to becoming a a mentalist which is you know kind of this yeah. early road sideshow psychic act that was yeah that was based on you know being able to read people but also having an assistant kind of work a code out with you but he kind of motivated by by greed and ambition he kind of shirks mm-hmm. the training that he's been brought up with and and sets himself up to become this kind of world famous real life psychic and though he's been warned many times not to do this he eventually faces very dire consequences for his actions yeah yeah and this this is the movie that i think it's it's definitely ties to to del toro's work but i feel like on the surface it will feel like his least del toro film Mm -hmm. but i think all of the trappings of a del toro movie are there Uh, and we'll talk about that so how did this movie get made? Well, in the early 1990s, after the release of Kronos, uh, I, 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 listened, I heard uh, him talk about this on WTF with Mark Maron uh, when Nightmare Alley was coming out. So this, some of these notes come from that. Uh, but in early early 1990s, after the release of Kronos, Del Toro was going to see a screening of Elmore Gantry in L.A. starring Burt Lancaster with his good old buddy, Ron Perlman. Uh, Perlman told him that he would love to star in a remake of Nightmare Alley, uh, from 1947 because he loved the characters. Um, Del Toro couldn't find the film at that point, but he did find the novel the movie was based on, which shocked Perlman because he had no idea it was a book. Um, when Del Toro read the book, he was shocked that a novel so dark and brutal was made during the production code era. And then when he finally watched the movie, he realized that not all the things he liked about the book were in the film because, as he called it, it was an interpretation of the book at the time. So he began thinking about adaptation of the book for a while, and this idea kind of stuck with him for years. One that also kind of inspired him, and I mentioned this earlier, but Crimson Peak was inspired by kind of ghost encounters of his of his real life or that his mom had. And this was somewhat inspired by his dad's kidnapping that we talked about mm. in the first episode. Mm-hmm. He said, when my dad was kidnapped, um, the police told, the negotiator told us, be wary of psychics who are going to try to ask you for money to tell you where your father is 
and hmm. he goes not right right after i got off the phone or met them i went to my mom house, mom's place and two psychics were there telling her he's trying to get in touch with you he's he's somewhere and he's like i kicked him out as soon as possible basically <laughs> he goes but there was these con art con artists these drift these grifters that were trying to use people's emotions as a way to get money um so finally in 2017 del toro this is after shape of water made during um del toro became attached to a film adaptation of nightmare alley uh, again, people saw his departure for Del Toro because there were zero supernatural elements to the film, and it was a straight dark story. And he planned for it to be an R-rated film, another mid-budget adult R-rated movie. Uh, he began co-writing the script with film historian Kim Morgan, and Del Toro and Morgan would actually marry one another in 2021. So, in 2019, Leonardo DiCaprio was in talks to star in the lead role of Stanton, but a few months later, Bradley Cooper was in talks to take over the role that Di- DiCaprio was up for. Um, Del Toro would then cast Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Tony Collette, and Michael Shannon in the movie, but Shannon would later drop out and David Strathairn would take over the role he was meant mm. to play. Which I love Michael Shannon, but David Strathairn is amazing in this movie. Yes, absolutely. Like, I think he's fantastic. The David Strathairn is to me one of the all time greatest character actors. Yeah. Like, he is fantastic in every role. I'm happy to see him. I think kind of after Nomad Land, people kind of taking note. Mm-hmm. Uh, of his talents so thomas what are kind of your favorite moments or favorite kind of scenes in this film uh, i i do i love the kind of sequence of him learning to become a mentalist with yeah. with yep. kind of learning Strand. under strathairn and tony yeah. collette and kind of built all, all the stuff at the carnival is so great you know it, it feels yeah. like it feels like there's a lot of potential you know you, you're introduced to this community and and then you kind of just slowly start to realize that this guy's got something shady up his sleeve. Yeah. Um, but you get kind of his little romance with Rooney Mara, Rooney Mara, and uh, yeah, I think I I really enjoy kind of all of that. But you know, yeah. just like any film noir, it's going to start going downhill after that. And so yep. I absolutely have a blast with any of Kate Blanchett's scenes. <laughs> she is chewing up the scenery in the best way possible. And, yeah. and she is having so much fun. I mean, it, uh, you know, you, it's got the feel of, I think Del Toro is very successful in creating the feel of a, of a noir throughout, but you can tell that Kate Blanchett was like, all right, femme fatale. I got it. I'm on, I'm locked yeah. in. Here we go. And she is just like, she is giving full film noir femme, femme fatale in that role. No, completely. And I think Cooper's fantastic in mm-hmm. the lead role. Like I think, I think it's one of his best performances he's done in a while. Cooper, Talk about a guy. I I feel like he's just getting screwed over these past few years <laughs> with all of his stuff. Like I still believe he should have been nominated for best supporting actor for Licorice Pizza this past year. Mm-hmm. I think he's incredible. I think he's electric. And it's interesting because I I heard I read that he was kind of shocked to be in this movie a little bit because he said the reason why he directed Star Is Born was because directors like Del Toro and Paul Thomas Anderson weren't ringing his phone off the hook. And he's like, I have to go make my own movie. He goes, well, now all of a sudden I make Star is Born. And all those directors I wanted to work with that weren't really calling me are now calling me because of what happened with Star is Born. Um, and Del Toro said that like one of the great benefits of working with Cooper, and this is because he's a director. And he said he, he brought an insight to the role that really kind of helped with the storytelling of it. And I think might have even 
been involved in some of the editing choices of the movie too hmm. um because del toro talked about on mark Marin that like he's like oh yeah bradley looked at it like in your or alejandro and and alfonso caron looked at it um he always he says i have a very open door policy with my editing room hmm. um and they all kind of provide uh notes for it but yeah when listening to to mark Marin, why i went back and rewatched this today before recording is del toro said a lot of stuff that i want to see kind of how he does we talked about how like the whole movie is like an origin story for the ending. Mm -hmm. It's all building to this ending scene. I try, I'll try not to spoil anything because it's so new and because I think people should go see it. Um, but well, he kind of spoiled it, but it's basically, it's, it's about this kind of like the journey that, that Cooper is going to go to and the place is going to end up and Mm -hmm. kind of be the kind of essentially a carny for life in some way. God, he's so good. He's so good in that last thing. The way the, the way the puzzle pieces fall into place yeah. for that last scene are just it's amazing. fantastic. It's it's one of those things. It's like the scene itself is brutal and like tragic, but like you're, you're having a good time watching. Like it almost made me smile at the end. And you know, yeah. you're just like, it's like all one big joke. It's like a punchline. Yeah. It kind of is. Okay. Cause he said, he told Cooper, he's like, we talked about how like basically 95% of the movie, this character never changes, mm-hmm. but it's all a prologue to this scene basically um of him and so to go with that um well i also read that um del toro said he goes that was the most important scene was that ending that kind of the big kind of reveal of of what the whole movie's building to mm-hmm. and he goes i was planning on shooting that t- that scene 40 to 50 times i would like i want to make sure it was perfect he goes and cooper got it in the first take and that's what's used oh my god wow <laughs> What a year! And so yeah. it's, we're gonna look it's, back on this year and be like, God, Cooper was so hot that year. It's the, the year, so good. The year of Bradley Cooper and Andrew Garfield. Yeah, and one <laughs> of them got recognition and one of them didn't. Like it's just insane. Um, but yeah, and the, but one thing he talked about too, he's like, he talked about how there's two things. He goes, all the sets they're built, most especially in that last half, um, they're all built like alleyways. Mm. They're all long sets that lead to like the end of something. Mm-hmm. So if it's Kate Blanchett's desk or if it's Richard Jenkins in the chair, just sitting there waiting for Cooper to show up. Mm-hmm. If it's the, if it's the hallways, if it's even his, uh, his dressing room, um, it's these long kind of sets that it's this alleyway, it's this alley. And a lot of the times the big thing that his kind of repeating symbol is a circle mm-hmm. is there's always circles throughout the movie. And usually it's at the, at, in the, in the uh, dressing room, the prime example is like, it's the, uh, it's this circular mirror that he has. Mm-hmm. Like all, the, he's the all, show, he, their showroom is, is circular. Their showroom is circular. Exactly. Um, and then, but when you look at what's it all leading to, he is the, the, the circle that represents the geek and where's the geek at in the movie, this big circle. Mm. That's where the geek is. That's where he performs that. So it's all leading to this moment of him becoming this. And one thing too, that I found kind of fascinating this time about why I wanted to watch it is that for the first 11 minutes, of this movie Cooper does not speak. Mm-hmm. And the first person he talks to is the geek when he finds the geek in the, uh, the fun house or whatever. Mm. So it's all this journey of Cooper becoming this type of person or this thing essentially, or essentially it's a geek. He's becoming a geek. And so you're going to see the journey this character is going to take to get there. You're going to see it kind of chipping away. And again, this kind of reoccurring thing we talked about with like strained parental relationships, 
a lot of this is just like fathers and mothers in a way is that everyone has issues with like a father or a mother or someone is 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 like what i think so interesting with that first half is that willem dafoe and david strathairn are kind of these two father figures for cooper mm-hmm. one's one's trying to steer him in the right direction and the other one is like yeah very actively trying to steer him in the wrong direction in the wrong direction and then you kind of have tony collette who's kind of this motherly figure in a weird way <laughs> um and and but yeah i think he's he uh del toro said he goes i gave him three three fathers and three mothers and Delf, defoe and and Stratha aaron and then his dad are the, the fathers and then the mothers are rooney mara tony collette and kate blanchett and they're all pulling him in a certain way mm-hmm. essentially um but yeah, so all, all these connections. So one thing I thought of too. So I said, Pants Labyrinth is tied to, to um, uh, 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 Shape of Water, and Crimson Peak is tied to, um, Devil's Backbone. I think this is tied to Kronos, the most, because for one, you have these industrial-like characters with Richard Jenkins and like in this kind of industrial thing. And everyone's kind of motivated by greed and the need for more. Mm-hmm. Very vam- vampire-like is what I feel like. And so I think Kronos, they have some interesting similarities to me. Yeah. Well, and the, the, you know, Kronos kind of answers the question, like a loved one is what can save you from becoming a monster. Whereas yeah, this is kind of asking throughout, like, can love save you from becoming a monster and and the answer is no in this one yeah yeah and but yeah there's so much in it so where i said i said earlier is that it, people think it's a departure for del toro but i think it's very much in line with everything he's yeah. done before well and you you know you're definitely you, we we've kept saying like you know the the definition of like monsters versus freaks or whatnot but mm-hmm. but this definitely is this like you know cooper no matter how kind of broke and and in need cooper is at the beginning of this movie he has always looked down yeah on on the carnies and yeah. as just kind of poor and gross and and lacking vision and all that kind of stuff and yeah. you know as soon as they teach him the ways of the mentalist he's like how can we make more money off of this and they're like you don't need to like we make a living and and once again this is this movie like all like he's done with all of his monster movies this movie says no these people have it figured out and in a lot of these movies there you know like we've always said greed is above all else greed is the the greatest sin in del toro's world and none of the none of those people are greedy like they none of the carnies need anything else except maybe more liquor in david strathairn's um situation but you know ron perlman seems perfectly happy where he's at tony collette is obviously cares a lot for the people around her but doesn't doesn't need anything outside of that world yeah like she gives up the book that strathairn like with the whole act she's like no it's yours like you kind of earned it i mean the only person i think that like cooper has sympathy for are the geeks Mm -hmm. like the entire if you notice the entire time it's the like when he asked the foe about he goes that he feels so like that's that's terrible uh or he talks to guys like when he first talks to the geek it's like hey i my i have no problems with you like i don't want like you can do whatever i'm just they're looking for you and then even when they drop off the geek at like the the church or wherever it's at, Cooper stays to like no put him under the overhang because it's mm-hmm. pouring down rain. And that's another thing I want to bring up too. I haven't said this the entire time, but if you notice, he's had three occurrences in his filmography where he has had that Jesus saves cross 
in his movies. Mimic. It's in Mimic. It's in Hellboy 2 when he's fighting oh, yeah. uh, with the holding the baby. Mm-hmm. And it's in this movie. It's nice. happened three times. Another, another little recurring. You were talking about the scene where he's with the geek in the uh, fun house. The, the uh-huh. guy who runs the fun house is Clifton Collins, who yeah. is in yeah. uh, Pacific Rim. He is. Yeah. And Jim Beaver isn't Jim Beaver who's in Crimson Peak. Yep, he's the he's, also, he's the guy who's like trying to shut him down. Yeah, he's the sheriff or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so but yeah, and all, but yeah, just phenomenal performance. I think Richard Jenkins is a guy. We talked about how his, he's the heart of Shape of Water. He's this very heartfelt, caring, kind character. And this, he's just like could be a serial killer. Yeah, like we don't we that, don't know. That last scene is like it's so intense, and there's so much going on in that last yeah. scene, and it's just like wait, wait, I'm sorry, what now? What did that? Could you, what did he just say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Backtrack this real quick. What do you mean? Like that's a that's a whole other movie. Yeah, that's a whole other movie with Richard Jenkins. Well, as Cooper's this great. Line. He's like he's reacting to that, but he's also like we got to hurry this along. We got to make we yeah. got to pull this off. Yeah. Oh, that the that whole the whole the like. You know, there's we there's a lot of movies out there that that can't nail the last twenty minutes of a movie, and that Nightmare Alley, the last twenty minutes of that movie are insane. Yeah, and and it was and when I watched it this time, it was better the second time, and so I'd be intrigued to see what it's like in the black and white version, because um, I've seen stills of it. And it looks it looks amazing, mm. um, but yeah, it's what's what's interesting is that we don't really have so things that we we talked about things we have that's been in a lot of his movies. You don't have the opening narration, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting. But you do still kind of have this like weird kind of separate, you know, with the with the house and the and the with the house the fire. You, you do kind of have this like, all right, that was this, and now we start on yeah, we start on yeah, the story, true. and we're all kind of. And, but the thing is, we're all we're seeing glimpses of that throughout the movie of like I think when he's like sitting in his uh when they're trained him and Remar are training for uh their show he's like sleeping in the chair and he imagines he's in the burning his burning house mm-hmm. where you don't know what it is that's saying the opening image of this movie is maybe one of his best opening images where it's just bradley cooper dragging a dead body and then burning down a house you're like what is going on yeah. and then as the movie kind of progresses you begin to kind of piece things together and figure out oh this is what's happening and then bill and then the, it comes back in where you see the entire scene play out toward the very end during cooper's kind of uh downfall mm-hmm. and so yeah it's it's all kind of yeah it's so it is like somewhat of a prologue but not it just it does feel separate from everything else and then it becomes important very much like the crimson peak opening or whatever it's all kind of becomes integral the part later yeah um but yeah you got your jars you got your devil's backbone jars and mm-hmm. stuff with the with the babies and yep. everything uh, again, I said circle. So yeah, it's a very the, the, and again the movie's kind of divided into halves. The first half is Stanton learning and listening and being quiet, and then the second half is him being the showman. The big thing that happened in the production of Nightmare Alley was, of course, COVID. Uh, the film was shooting in early 2020 when the COVID 19 p- pandemic hit, uh, but the production actually shut down a week before the majority of Hollywood had shut down. Del Toro stated that stopping was not mandatory back then, but we both felt if we if we don't stop now someone could get sick and we said we gotta stop nobody was expecting it everybody went to lunch and came back six months later <laughs> uh, according to bradley cooper he believes the last thing they shot before shutdown was when stanton takes the polygraph test for richard jenkins at that point the production had shot 45 percent of the movie uh before everything shut down and it sounds like blanchette was actually done with all of her scenes oh. before the shot so it sounds like they shot the second half of the movie first and the first half later 
Um, so Del Toro would then spend all his shutdown editing the scenes they had shot. He also began writing an 80-page document on safety guidelines and precautions for when they actually came back to shooting. <laughs> nice. He was prepared. He wanted to make this movie work. Um, Cooper apparently lost close to 15 pounds during the film shutdown, which helped with Stanton's look early in the film when he shows up to the lit, to the, the carnival scenes. Yeah. Uh, which again, we had not been shot yet. Rooney Mara was also pregnant during the first part of production and the shutdown allowed her to have time to have time. She needed for the pregnancy. And also I think she said she was worried about her being in that kind of the clothes that she's in when they're mm-hmm. doing the electrocution scene. Uh, she can kind of be prepared for that. So it works out that the films, the film was kind of made in halves and the stories in halves. Um, Cooper would later say at the end of it, we made nightmare alley for the last two and a half years. It was a unique experience going through the pandemic, taking six months off and revisiting it. We not only became lifelong friends, but it was an artistic experience. So the film would come out on December 17th, 2021, uh, released by searchlight. And it was of course in the middle, it released the same day as Spider-Man no way home. Yeah. Yes. Of uh, course. Which felt like a, someone put like, it felt like a joke. (laughs) Because the movie did not do well. I feel like there's this old, that, that's an old ho- holdover from another time of Hollywood where it's always like you have to program, counter-program a kid's counter-programming. movie with yeah. an adult film. And it's like, you yep. know, we're beyond that. Marvel movies yep. are everybody movies. And so you can't counter-program a Marvel movie. Like, it, you just can't. Nope. Nope. And so, yeah, so I saw this like in theaters in Alabama and it was like, it was about half, it was about half full for, for, I was somewhat surprised, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the middle of Spider-Man and Spider-Man basically dominated. It, you, you were hard pressed to find a theater in Atlanta that was showing it because Spider-Man, like so many theater and you know, theaters got to make money. So many theaters had, you know, three theaters, three, four theaters devoted to Spider-Man. Um, yep. it was it was tough to I, I i had intended to see it in theaters and i was gonna have to drive i mean in the city of atlanta i was gonna have to have to drive half an hour to get to a theater yeah. that had it it was tough and the black and white version i don't think was it's, it's kind of this road show um but yeah it, it definitely that one's also hard to find like that nightmare alley is still running but the black and white one outside new bev isn't running in like a main a main theater it's this experience instead of a consistent thing um so yeah so so financially it's only made at this moment in time 37 million dollars off a 60 million dollar budget and it's also kind of led again to the ongoing conversation of is there still an audience for big budget adult films i think with the the box office failure of nightmare alley the box office failure of the last duel the box office failure of west side story people have like wondered and i think pandemic is it's that's always going to be this variable to Mm -hmm. it like you can't fully judge it but i know a lot of people that like they just didn't want to go out to the theater to see movies movies like this but watched it when it got came to streaming yeah i I think this one had a huge the the people i know who are really passionate about it saw it in theaters or either went back and saw the road show but but yeah well i a lot of people i talked to streamed it once it hit yeah hbo and i think they did a, hbo did a pretty good push of like yeah, hbo at least Hulu, for me yeah. when i it was on the front page of hbo max yeah. for me for like a week or two it's been on the front page for me for like a month and two and i finally <laughs> watched it uh cause i think it was released on hbo max on uh and hulu on february 1st um the film received decent reviews it currently sits at 80 percent on rotten tomatoes with some i think some people have actually compared it to chronos in a way surprisingly now i read this 
Um, but it's also currently nominated at the time of recording this uh, for four Oscar nominations. Uh, best production design, best costume design, best cinematography, and best picture. Um, I think I think best production design might be the one that wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, we don't usually talk about Oscar predictions here, but um, let's look at this real quick. So we well, it's gonna be tough. So we got we got Nightmare Alley, we got Power of the Dog, Tragedy of Macbeth, West Side Story, and Dune. Oh, yeah, Dune might Dune, be tough. Dune might be tough to beat. For costume design, you got West Side Story, Nightmare Alley, Dune, Cyrano, Cruella. I hear I've heard Cruella is the front runner. The costumes in West Side Story were fantastic. They were, they were, and so I, I, it's gonna be tough. I think that's I think it's best bet with either of those two. Cinematography will be difficult because it's West Side Story, Tragedy of Macbeth. Power of the Dog, Nightmare Alley, and Dune, and Best Picture. I'm not so sure, <laughs> but I, I but I think this will be one. I think this is one. We talked about this earlier. said earlier about like looking back five years or whatever from now. I think Nightmare Alley is not a big favorite any way, shape, or form right now. But I think if you look back at this movie, this this era in like five to ten years, be like, oh, Nightmare Alley came out that year and no one really talked about it. It didn't get get any nom- any wins for anything, or Cooper didn't get any nominations for anything. So we'll see how time does for how time helps Nightmare Alley. Mm-hmm. So before we go into stats and everything, so unrealized projects for Del Toro, because mm-hmm. um, I won't go into all of them because there is a whole Wikipedia page. Yes, for Del Toro's unrealized project, I think almost thirty, but a few that I'll bring up that could be interesting. Because what I like, what's interesting about Del Toro is that he is a guy who is like a lack of a better term, fanboy director in some way. Like he likes comic book stuff, he likes superhero stuff, mm-hmm. he likes uh, animated stuff, but he's never fully directed like an MCU film or something. Right. Or a, 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 yeah, he's done Blade Two being the big thing that's the Marvel film, but not much outside that. But like, so he was attached to a Justice League Dark adaptation mm-hmm. right. that was going to be with he was directing it and writing it, and it was going to be Constantine, Swamp Thing, the Spectre, and Dead Man along with other characters. Um, but then DC, 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 EU, DC extended universe happened and they kind of pushed it under the rug and kind of canceled it. Um, he was going to do Frankenstein as we talked about, but what happened there? The dark universe got in its way. And so that was canceled. He was going to do Haunted Mansion remake that fell through. Um, he was going to do a Van Helsing movie at one point and that fell through. Uh, Hellboy three and then Hellboy Silver Lance was another one they're going to do. I think that was going to be uh, more about Abe, maybe is what it was. Yeah, a- Abe Sapien was going to be the, the main character, um, but that fell through. He was going to do uh, a Beauty and the Beast movie with Emma Watson that wasn't the Disney movie, and that fell through. Mm. So a lot of different things that he was up for. Yeah, Emma Watson is Belle for Beauty and the Beast, but that fell through and she ended up making, making Belle uh, at Disney. He was going to do a Hulk TV series at one point, but then Avengers came out and they decided not to do that with Mark Ruffalo because he was too big. Um, so a lot, of different, a lot of different remakes of kind of old favorites of his. Um, some he ended up producing instead of directing, like a, 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 the Afraid of the Dark one or whatever. You Scary had, Stories to the, Sell in the Dark, yeah. Scary Story Telling Dark, yeah. And a few other ones. I think um uh what was another one. The Orphanage, that was another one he was gonna do, but he ended up producing it instead. So a lot of different things that kinda happened that just it kinda fell by the wayside. Hobbit. Uh but he's going to be doing Pinocchio soon for mm-hmm. Netflix, which is one that been had been languishing for a while for him. 
I think Netflix is also trying to do At the Mountains of Madness, which he's been trying to do for over a decade, it feels like. So yep. finally he can actually make it. So yeah, we'll see what Del Toro, what happens to Del Toro with these next few years. Um, so stats, let's get to that. Um, so what do you think is his top three most popular films, Thomas? Pan's Labyrinth. Number two. Shape of Water. Shape of Water, number one. These are on Letterboxd, by the way. Uh, and... For three, I'm going to go with Hellboy Uh 2. No, I'm going to go with Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim number three. Okay, there we go. Uh, Least popular. Mimic. At the bottom. Uh, Kronos. Next to bottom. And Blade 2. No. Is is it devil's backbone i feel like it's devil's it is devil's, devil's backbone. backbone i was gonna say because of there because there's a criterion release of devil's backbone i thought maybe the letterbox maybe crowd it was swing yeah might have swing seen that one a little bit more it didn't yeah it's it's, it's they're pretty low um highest rated three top three highest rated films he did Pan's labyrinth number one at a 4.1 shape of water uh, number three at a 3.7 oh and it's one you've already named is it Pacific Rim? No, no, no. Okay. Hellboy 2. <laughs> no. Ah. Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone at 3.8. Okay. All right. Uh, lowest rated movies. Again, all according to Letterboxd, not really any. I swear to God, if it's Crimson Peak. Okay. So there's a four-way tie for the third spot. Okay. Uh, Crimson Peak is one of them. <laughs> Kronos. Kronos is not in the bottom. It's not Mimic. there. Mimic is the bottom at 2.9. Blade 2. Are people hating on Blade 2 down Blade there? Blade 2 is, is next to bottom at 3.2. You letterbox kids. <laughs> Respect your elders. Um, and then in the third spot, it's a four-way tie. Crimson Peak is one of them. What are the other three? At 3.3 for all four of these movies. 3.3 for all four. Uh, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim, yes. God, I feel like we've named everything in this. Or just all of his films rated 3.3? Hellboy 1 and 2. Oh, come on, guys. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> Kronos is a 3.4. Nightmare Alley is a 3.5. I feel like my, my rankings are not going to line up with the way <laughs> Letterbox ranks. I'm intrigued. I'm Because, yeah, we'll see how these rank, rankings go. Uh, last thing, most appearances that he's directed. I think some people are counting like, oh, one that he pr- something he produced or whatever, but he directed. You're expecting me to say Ron Perlman, but it's not. It's that guy, Sebastian something Wait, something who's in like all of them. Let me go to my stats and letterbox. He's, he's, okay. a, he's a Mexican comedic actor. He's a very sex, successful comedic actor in Mexico. He was like, he was on my list at one point, but he what? But let's see. He's like the Russian one with the boa that blades after and blade two. He's yes. uh auction. He's at the auction he's in Hellboy two. He's um. Is it Santiago Segura? Is that yes. who you're talking about? Yes. I have him down for only four movies. Really. Hellboy Blade 2 Pacific Rim and Hellboy 2 it needs to be because so the the person uh who's up or the there's two people actually Doug Jones is up there with six appearances Ron Perlman Ron Perlman's up there with six appearances as well oh I definitely thought this guy had more than Ron Perlman but maybe not Ron Perlman makes sense he's been with him literally through his entire career yeah so yeah because basically what puts so uh, he's Perlman in Pacific Rim little... that guy's I know he's in 
Did you say? Yeah, he's in Pacific Rim. I did. I did. Uh, Yes. Yeah, because he he works with Ron. He's in Ron Perlman's like club in that. He is. Ron Perlman's in Kronos, um, Blade Two, Hellboy One, Hellboy Two, Pacific Rim, and Nightmare Alley. Yeah. Doug Jones is in Mimic, um, Pan's Labyrinth, Shape of Water, Hellboy One, Hellboy Two, and Crimson Peak. Those are those the six. Nice. Um. All right, so that leads us to our rankings. Oh, let me get my list Guillermo up. del Toro. This is going to be interesting. Okay. Okay, so we'll go from the bottom. Bottom Go up. from the bottom to the top. Yep. All right. I'll go first. Mimic. Mimic, yep. Okay, what's your next one? Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim is my next one as well. My next one at the nine spot is Blade 2. That's, that's mine too. <laughs> what's your eighth spot? Kronos. That is my eighth spot as well. All right, here we go. I think we might start to deviate here. Seven. Okay. Hellboy. <laughs> I've got Hellboy. Okay. <laughs> All right, this is six, here we go. This six, is six. Six. I've got Shape of Water. Hellboy two. Okay. I I love Hellboy two. You're, you're, but we're but we're close. And my number five is Shape of Water. I've got Devil's Backbone number five. Really? Mm-hmm. That's the big difference right there. Okay. Um, my four. What's your four? My fourth is Hellboy 2. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. My fourth is Nightmare Alley. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah, we are going to have a different top five. Okay. For three, I've got Nightmare Alley. Three, I have Crimson Peak. I have Crimson Peak for two. I have Devil's Backbone at two. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then we both have Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is one. Interesting. We we really just flip-flopped like all of our top five except the one spot. I coming back to Crimson Peak for this episode, I had been it was one of those I've been like almost scared to revisit because it hasn't it hasn't had a resurgence. And I was like, I enjoyed that movie so much when it first came out. Surely if it was as good as I remembered it being, there would be a resurgence. And so I was like, I'm not going to like it as much when I rewatch it. And I think I liked it more the second time. Yeah. Especially, you know, knowing everything that we know about him now that we've learned this week. So I will be preaching the gospel of crimson peak from now on yeah i mean I, here's the thing i think i mean it's at my number three and i i think well we have we have the same well we don't have the same top four because you have hellboy 2 in the top four but we have but we're very much pro we're very much pro crimson peak and nightmare alley at least mm-hmm. is the big thing and we're kind of like shape of water's good yeah it's kind of kind of what it is um but here's why here's the thing i honestly think from blade 2 onward I think your films I would easily yeah. recommend yeah. that I really really enjoy. Like they, I, yeah, I like, don't have any honestly any of them except Mimic. You know, Pacific Rim wasn't up my alley, but I, I'd have a hard time saying anything other than Mimic was below three stars for me. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think yeah, I think I put Mimic at two and a half, and then I put Pacific Rim at three, and then everything else is three point five or or, or yeah. uh, more, three point five or more. Um. So, okay, that's interesting. Okay, but we, we, we're kind of like, we agree where we're at with Shape of Water, and we and we know where we're at with, and like I said, I, I could flip-flop Crimson Peak and Devil's Backbone. Nightmare Alley, I could flip-flop as well with certain things. But Devil's Backbone, just watching this first time, I thought was just, I think it was a fantastic film, especially for like, at his age and what he's doing, and how it solidifies his, his themes and ideas that he's going to be doing for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, final director questions we've been talking about this the whole month what are the themes and tropes of del toro 
monsters. We shouldn't be afraid of monsters. We should be afraid of men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, greed. Greed, for lack of a better word, is not good, according yeah. to Guillermo del Toro. Uh, yeah. Fascists are also not good. They're also not good. Yeah. <laughs> not a not fan good. of fascists. And and with that, you know, this whole idea of like seeing life through a child's eyes, but there's also just this idea of like the innocence. You know, Hellboy is presented to us as an innocent, despite as gruff as he might be. He's someone who's never been out in the world. Uh, Eliza is presented to us as an innocent. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of these films are about find you know the good being in these people, who who are, are either young or kind of new to the world. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, think that's... I mean, he, he plays the archetypes a lot of the time with the characters mm-hmm. of like, and sometimes it works more with say uh the captain vidal and pan's labyrinth and maybe not work as much with shape of water with michael shannon but and he's very much again likes taking genres and putting his own twist to them and then feeling just like him and again you also have the parental relationships as well that kind of pop up kind of underneath the surface with a lot of his films yeah and yeah and you know the the idea of pairing fantasy with very brutal reality which yeah. quite often we you know we didn't bring it up specifically with crimson peak and uh, really all three of the movies we talked about this week are all pretty have moments of just like absolutely brutal violence yeah i was i was reading a few letterbox reviews i think it was sean baker who's like who was like surprised by the brutal violence that just kind of comes up with uh uh with Miles shannon and michael Stuhlbarg. barg mm-hmm. um during that scene like just like it kind of comes out of nowhere and same with nightmare alley like nightmare alley is like really not violent until a point mm-hmm. and then and you're then just it, like oh it really is it really gets violent for like a brief second uh for a brief scene or two um so yeah it's it's a bit, yeah it's always startling violence in some way but that's realistic it's like it's it just it's it can just come out of nowhere a lot of times um and then a pretty easy question is Guillermo del toro an auteur yeah absolutely um, yeah, you, you, know, you, you called him you called him a fanboy director earlier and i do think he was one of the early you know when we talked about yeah. with, with blade 2 for him and david s Goyer, it was pretty it was pretty rare in the film industry to kind of admit that you were a comic book fan because that was still yeah. so looked down upon in pop culture at that point but yeah I, I definitely think we've had other you know fanboy directors come along after him but yeah. he he is one especially in this age of marvel like he's never let his his he's never let that get in the way of his individual style um no matter how much he's kind of thrown himself into a subject matter like blade like hellboy like adaptations of books that came before him it's still his voice still shines through all of these things yeah and even and i think with blade too is like that was like one that he didn't write Mm-hmm. And it was still very much a part of, or Pacific Rim, even to an extent, like he didn't come with that idea. He wrote a little bit of it, but he wasn't, it wasn't his original idea. Um, but all of them still feel very much like him. And then that leads to what did you learn from this month? What did you learn about Del Toro or really anything? I mean, so many of these specifics, I think I could have coming into this month, I could have told you like Guillermo Del Toro makes dark fairy tales, but like yeah. so much of this stuff we discovered kind of the, the prologue aspect the the greed i wouldn't have even been able to tell you i knew greed f- coming fresh off of nightmare alley i knew greed wasn't yeah was a theme there but like almost everything he ever did is just like always the bad guys are motivated by by greed yeah 
Yeah, and it's again, it's 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 not, and then it's like these weird things that kind of connect of the of just the design of things. It's like if it's the things in jars, or if it's the insects, if it's the clockwork. We didn't mention this, but like Armpit the idea stabs. of time, armpit stabs. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't mention the time thing of like again, Nightmare Alley. What it's about? It's his watch, like mm-hmm. Cooper's. It's the watch. It's his representation of things. Well, what's what's in Pan's Labyrinth? It's the watch. It's the watch for the the captain of of his of his dad. That he's making. It's this clockwork stuff. Like all these things are popping up in all of his films in subtle ways that um, if you're just watching them one every six months or whatever, you might not notice. But when we did 11 in a month, you see, oh, this is just like he's things he's plucking from here and there mm-hmm. and putting in here. And he's referencing these movies that he loves. If it's like if it's Crimson Peak and it's The Shining or Changeling or um, if it's Nightmare Alley and he's talking about the noir films he's watching that he's kind of pulling from like. Kate Blanchett is very much this like uh, Elizabeth Scott from Too Late for Tears, which I think was a big influence on him for that movie. Like he's very much just kind of taking from everything he likes. And so, you know, when I say fanboy, it's like I don't just mean of comic books, but like really just a film. Mm-hmm. Like we're in this period now where a lot of our tours are fanboys. If it's Tarantino, if it's Edgar Wright, if it's Paul Thomas Anderson, like it's movies who people or it's filmmakers who just love movies is the thing and mm-hmm. del toro is like becoming on social media kind of becoming a voice for promoting films and you're seeing that i mean like, i think i think scorsese wrote a piece in la times recently about nightmare alley and kind of what del toro is doing as a filmmaker showcasing this genre of noir basically so yeah i learned a lot because yeah. I, I del toro was a guy coming into this where i was just like oh yeah he said i know this i know that and i've seen some of his i've seen most of his movies but now watching them as a whole, because again, we always talk, we talked about this with Adrian Lyme recently. It's like every movie is a piece of the overall tapestry mm-hmm. of this director. Yeah. And some are different, just different kind of vibes and tones, but they all make up the one big piece. Yeah. And that's very much happening here with Del Toro. Yeah. I think this was our director episode I came into having seen the most of the director. But I also, you know, this is a director who, who, came up i came up with you know kind of he was rising around the time i was watching movies so like i had seen almost all of his movies but spread across 20 years yeah exactly and again in some cases i think with with these last three it's like we i hadn't seen chronos and devil's backbone and now i can be like oh cool well nightmare alley is kind of like chronos and devil's backbone is kind of like crimson peak Mm -hmm. and we wouldn't have made those connections before and so now we're like oh yeah he very much was exploring the same ideas and genres from the beginning that he's still exploring in his fifties yep. that he was in his twenties and early thirties. So I think that's on Guillermo del Toro. I think we covered it. I, th- I think we did as much. Yeah. What a month. Uh, and speaking of, of this series. So technically this is the first time I ever messed up on a scheduling thing. <laughs> um, the first part of our next series, which we're going back to the heist genre, which we did. I don't know if the episode's even on Apple podcast anymore. Cause it's so old now, but we're doing heist movies next month. But our first episode is coming out on March 31st, so be prepared for that. If you're listening now in May of 2023, this will mean nothing. <laughs> um, but if you're listening to it uh, week by week, just know our month is starting a day early for you, and so you'll get five episodes uh, on the heist genre. So the first episode we're doing is we're talking about Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. So if you go check that out beforehand, please do. It's kind of Soderbergh's kind of making films for a while, but it's kind of big mainstream push. Uh, it stars George Clooney coming off of 
Batman and Robin, I believe. So we'll talk <laughs> about that next week. Um, but that's what I have for this episode. If you're a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so that you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you rise to be on whatever platform you listen to the show on. You gotta, guys, we need you to boost our visibility. We can do everything we can do. You can record the podcast like you like it. We can put it out there on social media. But in the end, it, it, the power is in your hands. And so, you know, post a little something. Say, I like this podcast. It is very good. Or, hey, this podcast is fine if you if you like movies and you, and you want to listen to two people talk about them. But, you know, whatever you think, just, just post it. Yeah, it's just whatever you do will help us tremendously. Join the team. And finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. Uh, and as always, Thomas, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.